The trained eye can spot a gym rat a mile away. A gym rat is a kid who is always hanging out at the gym, lifting, running, training, persistently honing the skills of a sport. You might detect a gym rat simply by the way that person walks or looks. But a gym rat, I think, is probably detected best on the field of play. There's certain moves, there's certain idiosyncrasies that athletes develop only by spending an unusual amount of time training for that sport. A gym rat lives in the gym. And the effects of that environment are evident to the discerning eye. Now, in contrast to gym rats, are kids who devote their spare time to playing sport, let's say, on a video game, and then think they know the game. They think they know all about it, in fact. They're wild about the sport. They talk about it all the time. Everyone knows that this is their interest. But get them out on the court, the mat, the ice, the field of play, and it becomes increasingly evident that they are really not developing athletically. I see this from time to time as I watch children's sports. I see an individual out there and say, that's a gym rat. I guarantee he's got a membership to a club. You can just tell. And then there's other times you look and say, the kid's learning sports off a video screen. There's just no two ways about it. You pick it up. You see it. If godliness was a sport, would God see you as a gym rat or a video player? If godliness was a sport, how would the discerning eye of God see you? There's a way to live the Christian life such that you are always training yourself in godliness. Much of this training takes place behind closed doors, in the private of your own mind. But the discerning eye can see the signs of godliness. It's evident. But you can also spend much time and exert all kinds of religious activity, but not be growing any closer to the likeness of Christ. You can be a Christian, in quotation marks, doing a lot of things, knowing many truths, but there's nothing changing. There's no transformation taking place. Everyone knows you're a Christian. Your interest in the faith is self-evident. You're spending all this time doing Christian things. And you know a lot of these facts about Christianity, but you're not progressing in godliness. What happens to kids that just learn a sport off a screen? and think they can go on to the field of play by imitating what they see in a professional athlete, just mimicking that athlete without doing the work. What happens to those kids? Eventually, along the way, they drop out of the sport. Usually they have a little help from someone to say, this isn't working, this isn't going to happen. The same thing is true of Christians who do, not, who do lots of Christian things 
but do not genuinely exercise themselves in godliness. Soon they fall away from the faith. It is this danger and its remedy that the Apostle Paul addresses with pointed exhortations to his understudy Timothy here in this fourth chapter of 1 Timothy. In the first verse we read here, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. They will fall away. The later times here is natural to read that as sometime future, but as we understand this word in the New Testament context, it refers to the period between Christ's first coming and his second advent. The latter days are the days in which we live now. They are the days, in fact, in which Timothy and Paul lived. Understood in this way, inaugurated at Christ's first coming, and carrying forward until he comes again, these later times will be marked, prophesies the Spirit of God, by people who depart from the faith. Some will depart, or the Greek word is to fall away. We use the word to apostatize. That is, they will receive, it seems, the message of Christ crucified and risen, but over time they will fall off. Over time they will leave the faith. This will be part of the Christian experience. Some will personally abandon their relationship to Christian doctrine. Now this is really chilling. The reason for their departure from the faith is not owing to gross immorality or to spiritual apathy. It comes from what? It comes by means of the second part of verse 1, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They will be led astray by deceitful spirits and demonic teachings, taught to them by hypocritical liars, we find in verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That is, individuals who will arise who teach the teachings of demons because their own conscience are seared. What people see externally is these individuals simply teaching. They're capable teachers, but there's a hidden agenda, as verse 2 makes clear. There's insincerity and there is a seared conscience, convincing teachers, disseminating hidden agendas. There is a high call to disciplined religious devotion by these teachers, verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. So what lies on the outside is what seems to be devoted religious activity, capable speakers who are appealing in their dissemination of their ideas. But what is it that lies below the surface? It is demonic inspiration. The source is the demonic realm and the teachers are those who sound trendy and smart and relevant and are capable teachers, but in reality they are puppets on a string parroting whatever the father of lies wants them to say. And it appears that they know it to some degree, for their consciences are cauterized by repeated disobedience to God. You can begin to disobey God and then continue in that pattern to the place where it doesn't bother you anymore. 
And there are people who stand up and are so involved in the play acting of their false teaching that they no longer sense that something's wrong. And they begin to deceive in their teaching. And what they teach here specifically in Timothy's situation is the denial of two earthy pleasures, marriage and foods. I think that you always are inferring from the text of Scripture. Clearly, these people aren't saying you can't ever eat. That uh, little cult would end real fast. But he's saying certain kinds of foods. You are to abstain from certain kinds of foods in this ritualistic endeavor. Their religious devotion consisted of depriving themselves of these gifts. And we might ask, what's the big deal? Singleness is legitimate, and shouldn't we be free to choose to abstain from certain foods? Indeed, we are. The problem is that these disciplines were seen as a means to godliness. And that was out of sync with a biblical worldview. This is not how we become godly. Their devotion to religious discipline was actually pulling them away from the Lord. This is not the path there. To forbid marriage and abstain from foods, the middle of verse 3, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In other words, their religious devotion, consisting of depriving themselves of the gifts that God had given, was actually pulling them away from God. It wasn't getting them anywhere closer. We're not given details here, but meat usually led the list of forbidden foods. This seems to be something Paul was dealing with all the time, was what meats could be used, and some people saying there's certain meats because of its dedication in a pagan setting that should be forbidden. There was also much ascetic practice that was prevalent at this time, and people setting aside good food and saying, I will not touch this in order to draw closer to God. Well, God didn't make us capable of eating rocks. He made us capable of eating meat. And He gave us meat as a gift. And why did He do that? Did you notice it in verse 3, the latter part of verse 3? Why does God give us food? I mean, there's a lot of different ways we could sustain ourselves in, uh, theoretically, but God gives us food. The middle of verse 3, He created food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What is the truth? In part, the truth is that God is the creator and that he is good. You know what we just sung? God is so good to me. He is good to us in infinite ways at all times. And one way that he helps us to remember that is by our daily food. By receiving food with thanksgiving, with prayers of gratitude to God, we are reminded of His goodness to us in this simple earthy pleasure. You cannot honor God, says Paul, by being unthankful for what He has made. Perhaps He gives a little leeway for snakes and Brussels sprouts. I don't know, but... Uh, seriously, that's obviously not the point here. It's not that we cannot see anything as repulsive in God's creation or that we'd never find any food difficult to put down. That's not what it's saying. What he is saying is we need to understand in all of our religious endeavor that God is good, that he's the creator, that he's the giver of every good gift, and to set gifts aside, saying I'm going to draw closer to God by denying 
his goodness as creator is foolishness. So he is not saying, for instance, that it's evil to be a vegetarian or to cut certain foods out of your diet for health reasons. In fact, we, we should. But what he is saying is that you cannot choose to be a vegetarian for any reason that fails to honor God as the creator who has given human beings meat as a good gift. These people, then, are messing around with religious activities. Religious activities that reflected a dualistic philosophy that some things in the physical world were evil. In fact, what we can do to get away from this physical world is helpful to us spiritually. Through these dualistic philosophies, they were denying creationism. And they were denigrating God's goodness. God made a physical world and he made it good. And we are called to enjoy that world appropriately, properly, with thanksgiving, but to enjoy it. As verse 5 says there, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. He hones in particularly on food. This would also involve marriage, but particularly with food, it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. This doesn't mean that a prayer makes it magically holy in some way. But by his word, God created food and our prayers give thanks for this goodness. Now let's put ourselves in the Ephesian setting for just a moment. There's a strong emphasis toward asceticism, toward not doing certain things that are fully legitimate on their own standing. I wish that I had the time. We don't. But we could take much time to talk through how this teaching continued on in the ancient church and became predominant in the medieval church. That the way to God was to deny yourself certain physical pleasures that God had granted to his people. Our day is very different, at least in this culture, in this setting. There are places where asceticism remains a problem for the pursuit of godliness. But in our situation, we're on the very other end of the scale, it would seem to me. We are in a culture in which we have legalism on the one hand which might somewhat parallel asceticism, but it's really a different issue. But we have what's much more pervasive, it seems, a libertarianism. That is, no one's ever going to tell me no about anything. I do whatever I please, and that's the only issue of our day. So our problem that we're dealing with in our culture is very different than Paul was dealing with here, that Timothy was dealing with at Ephesus. But in either event... It is possible to waste your time messing around with bad teachings and bad practices that pull you away from the true faith and godliness. It looks religious. It looks like godly pursuit. But it's a big waste of time. In both situations, there are always teachers who rise to the surface, who peddle Satan's lies under religious pretenses. The only window that permits us to see what they really are is what? What is the window? What is the tool that God gives us here to look into or to see their deception? That truth is the true doctrine. The test is the objective true doctrine, just as Paul does here in giving us this example. We have these people who are saying, don't marry. And they're saying, don't eat these certain foods, and that will draw you close to God. Paul begins to think here at the middle of verse 3, down through verse 5, theologically. 
He begins to think of biblical doctrine and biblical truth, and he says, now wait a minute, God is the creator. God has made these foods and he has created marriage for the joy of his people. That's not going to get you any closer to God. A person may choose not to be married. That may be a good thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There may be certain foods we ought to set aside. But that's not in itself going to draw us to God. It's not going to produce godliness. To use my analogy, it's like trying to learn a sport on a video screen. This is what so concerns me and I think our church about this day and the lean. The lean is toward libertarianism. The lean is toward every individual relativistically defining truth for themselves. At the same time, then, we are not developing our capacities to know God's word and thus to discern deceiving spirits. We're in a difficult time. Though our day is very different than theirs, we need to realize that religious talk and freedom of expression within religious contexts is not drawing us closer to God in itself. We must know the truth of God's Word and test every spirit by it. This is our standard. Having exposed these false teachers, Paul now goes on to look to Timothy and to explain to him how he should respond. And the call here is now to exercise yourself unto godliness. Verse 6, he, sa- he starts first by saying this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That is, if you talk to the family of God and you explain these things to them, you will be faithful in your service to the Lord. You're to warn believers against false teaching. There is only one way of life that will indeed help. As verse 6 goes on to say, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. By exercising himself to know the gospel, words of faith, and developing himself in the doctrinal teaching that emerges from the gospel, the good doctrine, Timothy will fit himself to teach against false teachers. What does this say to us as a church? How does this help us line ourselves up with the Word of God? This might sound very obvious to us as a church. It's becoming less obvious to many. Pastors should be students of biblical truth. And I would say they should be, in a foremost way, students of biblical truth. A pastor that does not push himself to constantly learn the Bible will eventually become as dangerous to his spiritual flock as a napping shepherd is to his sheep. That might seem very obvious to us, that pastors should know the Bible. It's becoming increasingly less than obvious in many settings. The idea of the pastor, the model of a pastor in many settings, seems to be one who is capable of administration primarily, one who is particularly charismatic. And you can watch the statistics as they come off the presses, but there's evidences this way that continue to emerge, that people look at pastors primarily as administrators and are primarily concerned with their personality and only secondarily with their knowledge of the Word of God. 
I'm not saying that administration or personality are small issues by any means. But I am saying that a pastor should be always learning the Word of God. And there is a way of doing all the right things on the outside and not growing closer to God. That affects an entire assembly. In contrast to the false teachers who are fiddling around with ascetic practices, Timothy is, verse 7, to do what? Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Don't give yourself to this junk, says Paul. In Timothy's setting, this was the stuff that attracted many nominal Christians away from active faith in Jesus Christ. Christians were wasting their time seeking keys to the Christian life embedded in myths read into the Old Testament. It's really attractive. It's a lot of fun. It's real interesting. But like a kid who thinks he's learning to play football by playing a video game, they thought they were drawing close to Christ following these fanciful teachings, but we're actually pulling away from God. Don't join them, Timothy, says Paul. What are we talking about in our day? This could be discussed at some length, and obviously this is somewhat subjective, but I think much of the spirit of what Paul is talking about here is displayed with television preachers in our day. Not all of them, but many of them. Many of them are peddling deceptive ideas. And there are people that are fiddling around and messing around with things that are not bringing them closer to God. It's attractive. It's interesting. It draws people in because it meets them where they are. The problem is it doesn't ever take them anywhere else. It leaves them right where they are. I think another source of application to our own setting are psychological self-help books with a Christian twist. It's really nothing more than man's thinking about how people should change. But it's pictured in Christian terms, and people fiddle around with these kinds of things. There are seminars and the like that are being pressed forward all the time that are presenting a spiritual pursuit that is really a waste of time. And more than just a waste of time, it is positively destructive. This is going on in our day, just as it was going on in Timothy's day. And so, says the Apostle Paul, don't get involved in it. Have nothing to do with these irreverent and silly myths. Rather, the middle of verse 7, train yourself for godliness. This is the call of God. Train yourself for godliness. The false teachers got people really busy in devotion that ran in the wrong direction. Timothy's not to be spiritually lazy. But he is to exercise himself unto godliness. He's to become, if I can use the term here, a spiritual gym rat. He's to spend his time exercising himself for godliness. Genuine devotion to the moral nature of God. Drawing close to who God is and what he calls his people to become. So... Timothy, don't mess around with a bunch of religious prohibitions and fanciful myths. Discipline yourself by spending time in God's gymnasium of moral virtue and holiness. It's silly. It's unproductive to think that denying yourself a lamb chop is going to draw you close to God. It's a waste of time to chase fanciful myths as the key to the Christian life. What you should be doing is exercising yourself to deny lust to deny bitterness and greed 
and the fear of man and unfaithfulness, to put your character and your practice up against the example of Jesus Christ, to weigh it carefully, and then to go after it. What is in my life that would not be in the life of Jesus Christ? Put it to death. That's where your focus should be. Positively exercise yourself to know God's Word, to think His thoughts after Him, to share the gospel of Christ with others, to proclaim it widely and freely, to learn to give of yourself, to be selfless, to learn to pray, to put others ahead of yourself, to develop an orientation, the orientation of a servant. This is where you're to be exercising yourself to see what is negatively in your life that would not be in the life of Christ and positively what is in the life of Jesus, to be enamored with the beauty of who He is and to go after that with all of your heart and soul. Exercise yourself all the time to become like Jesus Christ. Don't mess around with video games. Get into God's gym and work. 4, verse 8, in explanation, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is, may I say, just by a quick sideline, this is not a real strong endorsement for physical exercise as, as some have taken it. There are solid reasons that Christians should exercise their bodies. I've written on that here recently to our church. I obviously believe that. And for some here today, perhaps a regimen of physical exercise might well be one of the most beneficial things you could do spiritually. I'm not denying that at all. We're stewards of our bodies. They belong to God. We need to exercise and we need to pursue health as stewards of our body. However, having said that, this phrase is no ringing endorsement for physical exercise. Bodily exercise, he says, he's looking at something much bigger and higher. Bodily training is of some value. There's some worth to it. However, godliness is of value in every way. Pursue godliness with vigor, for unlike physical exercise, exercising yourself for godliness pays dividends both now and throughout all eternity. And isn't that the frustrating thing for those that are involved athletically? Or, using another parallel, those that are involved musically. It's just a constant chore to stay in shape. But when we stay in shape in godliness, there's a time when we will pass from this life into the next, and we'll take everything with us. It'll never go away. We'll never fall out of shape in God's presence. So exercise yourself now to be who you were created by God to be. You will never regret growing closer to God, growing more in the likeness of Christ. You will be richly rewarded here and in eternity, so go for it. Run after the life you now have in Christ, which will explode into glory in the next. There is great worth at all times, both here and forever, in pursuing godliness. Verse 9, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. 
highly debated as to whether that goes with before or after, but I take it here, I think, to what he has just said. I think there's a little stronger argument there, but it could be taken either way. But I think he is saying here that training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way, holding promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is a trustworthy statement. Hold on to it. Go after it. Exercise yourself for godliness. 4 verse 10, to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God. Here's the motivation for this orientation in anticipation of the life to come. Paul toils and strives with his hope firmly fixed on the living God. The living God can energize us and can give us life. The keys and the tips and the diversions of the false teachers do not fix our eyes on the living God. They fix our eyes on their unique teachings. It is very concerning. I know individuals. I've talked to them. I've seen the craving in their heart for something said in a different way because they've grown cold to the words of God. It's a frightening place to be. Don't let yourself get there. Exercise yourself unto godliness by knowing the truth of God and setting your hope on the living God. Dead Christianity focuses on finding these hidden solutions, discovering new ways, chasing after novel interpretations of Scripture, and practicing meaningless acts of devotion. And it's all with all kinds of religious stir. So exciting, so new, so different, so dead, so deadly. Set your sights on the living God, says Paul. Don't get lost in these backwaters. Set your sights on the living God, the end of verse 10, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul is clearly not saying that all people are believers, that all people are saved. I would offer two quick defenses of that point. Just look at how Paul lived his life. He clearly didn't believe everyone was saved by God. He went through much trial over the known world to take the gospel to people who had not heard it. Secondly, there are specific passages where Paul speaks of the condemnation of the lost in very clear terms. So anyone who would take this phrase to say Paul is saying that all people are saved is not listening to Paul. They have their own agenda. That's not what he means when he says that he is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. But the key phrase here is the especially, and perhaps could be best translated, namely. He's the Savior of all people, namely, or as some would take it, the Savior of all kinds of people, namely, of those who believe. We know, Paul has said this many times in other places, with far more development, that it is those who believe that are saved. The entire book of Romans, at least the first two-thirds of it, particularly address this point. It is those who believe that are saved. Some would take this to say that there is some saving effect of God in a common sense for all people, and I don't know that that would be a, a wrong 
interpretation out of the gate, but I think probably just read it as, namely, those who believe. He is the Savior of those who believe. Now let's stop there and move it forward and think and contemplate what we've considered. God, if you can grant me this analogy for a little longer, God can spot a spiritual gym rat a mile away. And so can people who are exercising themselves unto godliness. There's a certain way of seeing it. Now the point is not that we become judges and that we say, yes, I can detect this person's pursuing godliness and this person isn't. That's not at all the way we should be going. The point is what you are pursuing in your private life shows itself in your public life and perhaps a lot more than you know. There's a way of detecting those who in private are pursuing godliness. And there are evidences of those who are not pursuing godliness. You may never discern that. You may not see that. It may not hit you. But the evidences are there. They're there certainly in the judgment of God. And I think they're probably there much more than we would recognize in the discernment of godly people. So why do people pursue these things? Why do they chase after these interesting leads that take them away from the truth of God? Why does asceticism work in this world? Who's out there volunteering, I don't ever want to be married? Who's out there volunteering, there's all kinds of good food that I don't want to eat? Why do people go this way with asceticism? Why do people give in to legalism? They become overwhelmed by their lists of rules that guide their every day experience. Why do people give in to these things? I think one of the reasons is guilt. There is unresolved guilt that lies under the surface and drives people. Putting that right together with the next idea, there is a creation of a standard that one can meet. I'm not meeting the standard of godliness in my private world, and so I create an external standard that I can fulfill in the eyes of others. And it's a really happy day when I can link up with other ascetics, and I can link up with other legalists who follow the same rules and the same rituals, and all of us can form one happy band of brothers who all keep the rules. And all the time, the image of Jesus becomes more and more distant. And if we go on that path too long, someday we fall away altogether. I think another thing that fuels this is pride. We don't want to deal with the fact that we fall short of the weightier matters of righteousness that are demanded by our following of Christ. Well, whatever the reasons for it, there is a strong call to us here to set asceticism aside and legalism aside. Let me just throw in real quickly again. It's not to say that it's wrong to fast. It's not to say that someone should never choose singleness to serve the cause of Christ. It is not to say that we shouldn't set aside, perhaps, certain foods for the betterment, the advance of Christ's cause. Not saying any of those things, but it's saying seeking religious devotion in these things 
needs to be left in the dust by this church and by each of our individual members. We need to take up the call to discipline ourselves unto genuine godliness. Perhaps you've gathered here today and do not know Christ as your Savior. I would say that your need and the call of Scripture is to turn from your sin and self-reliant religion and to serve the living God. There are all kinds of false religions out there and it might be constructed in your own mind to be your own personal way of faith that salves the conscience and leaves a person in lostness. Our salvation does not come by depending upon ourselves. Our salvation comes by depending upon the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection power. You must come to believe and place your faith and your confidence in him. Turning from self and your own ways and your own sin to Christ. For those of us that know Jesus, that believe in our heart that we are believers, The potential is there that we fall away from the faith. I don't believe that that means that we lose our salvation. But I think what it means is that the potential that we're delusional is always there. The way to be assured of our salvation is to be growing in godliness. There's nothing that is more assuring than to see the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in your life to know that you're growing in the likeness of Jesus. You can see it, and perhaps others don't. Perhaps they don't see all that God is doing, but you know that He's conforming you into the likeness of Christ. You know that He's giving you a desire to be the person that you should be. You're not chasing fanciful stories and religious activity, but you are drawing closer to the person of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest form of assurance, and it is the way of the Christian walk. Are you growing in godliness? Or are you wasting your time in the equivalent of religious video games? I speak to the believer, to those who have a testimony of faith in Christ. Where do we go with this? How do I exercise myself unto godliness? What specifically does that look like? I would say every one of us knows exactly what it looks like when it comes at least to the start of the process. You know that there is sin that takes you away from God. You know that there is a need to repent of what you know is not right in your life. Start there today. We can talk all about, I don't know what I'm supposed to do when we aren't dealing with what we do know that's right in front of us. What is it that you are doing? What is it that you are thinking? What pattern is in your life that is taking you away from being like Jesus Christ as he would be in your shoes? Turn from it. Repent of it. Confess your sin. And draw close to Christ today. And then I think, secondly, we need to take on this orientation We need to get off the pattern of thinking, I'm somewhere going to find the key out there. There's a new teacher, there's a new thought, there's a new way, there's some trick I haven't figured out yet. Get off of that whole focus and put our focus where this whole book started in chapter 1 and verse 5. 
Chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Orienting toward that goal isn't going to change anything in and of itself, but you're never going to get there if you're not oriented to it. You're running a 100-meter race, and you're turned in the wrong direction. You're focused on something in the stands. You're not going to get to the finish line. You're not going to win the race. Get your focus here. We are to pursue a life of love for God and others. A life that throws itself aside and places the importance of others ahead of ourselves and pours itself out in giving toward others. We are to give ourselves toward a pure heart to maintain our attitudes in godliness, to set aside and to put to death the passions of the flesh and to pursue a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is to be the orientation. So we leave sin in repentance. And we orient ourselves to this life of love and sincere faith. And then can I say this thirdly, we come to the living God. We come to face the living God, knowing that He is the source of our spiritual life, that He alone can do the work in your heart that you can't do. The life comes from Him. We go to Him, to this living God, and we seek in the face of Jesus Christ to reflect His glory, who He is. And then, practically speaking, we meet Him in His Word and we follow through what, with what that word teaches and what we learn through our prayers to the Lord in a life of genuine devotion to Him. To learning to set aside pleasures and pursuits in our life that are taking us away from God and to exercise and discipline ourselves to following a pattern of life that is genuinely godly. There is nowhere we can go for the source of this further than the Scriptures, or better than the Scriptures. We need to know the truth of God. We need to see the person of Jesus Christ. We need to pattern our lives after Him. But I would commend to you as well to stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before. Read Christian biography. Know of the struggles of Christians who have gone before and have lived for God. Be challenged by what the people of God have done through the centuries. Live in a different time for a while in a book and learn to trust God and walk in faith. Certainly that includes as well the living and where we can put around our lives individuals who are growing in godliness. We can spot the gym rat in them and say, I don't know what they always do in their private life, but I can see in their public life, here's somebody that is pursuing God and is a godly person. Get around them. Ask them questions. Spend time with them. Put around your life people who love the Lord. I don't give this as a foolproof list that you follow, but it's a way of life. It's an orientation. 
and it's a pursuit. We must discipline ourselves to godliness. You will never become like God by sitting around and doing nothing and just showing up to church or even doing religious activities. You can only become like God by seeing him and going after him with all of your heart and soul. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father, we come to you with prayers of humility. We acknowledge before you, our Father, that we fall short of your glory. We come as sinners. But Lord, I believe, I pray for most here that we long to be godly people, to be people in whom the image of Jesus Christ is reflected, however imperfectly. We long to be people whose interests are centered in what they should be centered on. We will long to be people who have pure hearts and sincere faith, who love others and love you with all of our heart. God, we have so far to go. We are so small. We turn, Father, in this moment of prayer from our sin, our selfishness, from our being enamored with things that draw us away from who you are. Father, I pray that you would motivate us, that you would teach us, that you would draw us to yourself. I pray, God, that you would challenge us to exercise ourselves as a church unto godliness and that we would know the joys of demonstrating the character of Jesus. I pray for anyone who knows you not as Savior. Father, may this be a day of repentance. May this be a day of faith and trust in Christ. God, may we see that we were created in your image and that every sin detracts from our created purpose, but that as we draw close to you through redemption and the way of salvation in Christ, we can be restored to become increasingly the people that we were created to be. I ask that we would realize that in our daily walk, that you would conform us from one degree of glory to another until we see Christ. Hasten that day. Through him we pray. Amen.